The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations from listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely online at kopn.org. Thank you. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today, I am delighted to welcome my guest, Ms. Molly Rockman. She is the founding director of Earth Dance Certified Organic Farm School based in Ferguson, Missouri where she manages staff and overall operation. She oversees and assists with programs, fundraising, and numerous special projects. She is a St. Louis native, but she has received truly international agricultural education. She has worked with mushroom producers in Ghana, organic rice farmers in Thailand, vegetable farmers in Florida and California, and sugarcane farmers in Fiji. Molly earned a B.A. in Environmental Studies from Eckerd College, a Certificate in Ecological Horticulture from UC Santa Cruz, and a Postgraduate Diploma in Development Studies from the University of the South Pacific. Molly returned to her heartland roots, and she is dedicated to preserving farmland and celebrating the culture in agriculture. Welcome, Molly. Thank you, Melinda. So I am familiar with your work. We have served alongside each other on the MOSES board. That's the Midwest Organic Sustainable Education Service Board. And I believe that you are a true visionary. And your recent comments at the University of Missouri's Center for Agroforestry's 12th Annual Symposium made me realize that I needed to bring your voice to our listeners. And I will provide a link to the panel on which you presented under the title of Regional Urban Food Justice. But let's step back. Let me start my first question to you with, how did you decide to explore farming as an occupation? That is a great question, Melinda. And I often say that my kind of farming is I'm farming people as much or more than I'm farming crops because as a as an executive director of a nonprofit farm, a lot of my time is spent um, in meetings more than in fields, unfortunately. <laughs> but I do I, I do consider myself a farmer because those are often important aspects of running the overall farming operation. And my entry point to it was really, honestly, as an environmentalist and as somebody passionate about health and nutrition, I actually grew up just kind of being the kid in the family that liked vegetables and loved nature and and went to college for environmental education. And it wasn't until I took a class called Hunger, Plenty, and Justice, and this was back in, well, I won't say the year, but a long time ago, at Eckerd College in Florida, where I was realizing that agriculture is really the intersection of so many things that I really care about, whether it's women's and gender studies or whether it's international relations or certainly environmental conservation and certainly social justice and education. Just so many different topics, I think, intersect with agriculture. Mm, Yeah. I mean, we all eat. And when you start thinking about it, agriculture truly is at the intersection of so much. Mm -hmm. And it's wonderful that you were able to recognize that. 
But recognizing it and then going on to operate a 14-acre farm, how did you get there? Yeah, that is a great question. Well, it actually even goes back before my college years then to when I was 15 years old, my dad took me to this old organic farm in Ferguson, Missouri, that somehow he had known about. He grew up in Ferguson and his business was always there um, that he started when he was young. And it was just on a whim. I think he just thought like, oh, my vegetable eating nature loving daughter must want to see an organic vegetable farm. And I just remember being in awe of the farmers and in awe of the fact that there was 14 acres of good farmland in the middle of a neighborhood in Ferguson. So I just kind of tucked that in the back of my mind and always wondered what was going to happen to that land when the couple passed on because they didn't have any kids to keep the farm going. They were probably in their late 70s by the time I met them. And yeah, at 15 years old, literally a single visit, like planted that seed, so to speak. Wow. And it's sometimes baffling to me, like, wow, that really like stuck with me all those years. I honestly never thought I'd make it back to Missouri because I, um, I definitely love the water, love the ocean. And as you mentioned in the bio, I just was always pulled to coasts and living in warmer climates. But something about that farm, I just was really hopeful that there could be another life to it beyond the life of these farmers. And so after actually doing an apprenticeship in organic farming myself at UC Santa Cruz, that I honestly initially did thinking, I guess I'm bouncing a little bit around. I went and studied in Fiji at the University of South Pacific the year after I graduated undergrad. And while I was there, was really exploring the sugarcane industry as my research focus and finding out how incredibly damaging the sugarcane industry was to the marine ecosystem surrounding these islands and talked to different stakeholders and said, well, have you all considered, you know, going fair trade because there was concern that they wouldn't soon be able to make a living anymore, a lot of the sugarcane farmers because of the expiration of the big trade agreement and then also because of the way the herbicide runoff was affecting marine life as well as the the mill waste that was running into the, the ocean. And I'll never forget this man, Rupaini Tamani Yikeroy, said, well, Molly, I've been trying to talk to my boss about that for years, about going organic, but they won't listen to me, but I bet they would listen to you. And honestly, it was one of these, like, aha moments of, like, the privilege I carry as a young white American woman Mm -hmm. in particular. It was interesting, but that was a privilege in that case of he thought I could open doors that he couldn't open himself. And so I thought, okay, well, sure, I can be used in this way, (laughs) you know, like I'll try to galvanize people together to talk about this issue. But first I was thinking, you know, why would they listen to me as some young environmentalist? I actually better have some farming credit (laughs) under my belt. So I did a farming apprenticeship program at UC Santa Cruz initially so that I could go and work with sugarcane farmers on transitioning to organic. Wow. And while I was on that farm in Santa Cruz, kept thinking about the land in Missouri. And eventually, you know, I, I went back to Fiji, got the project started. There was a political coup going on, and it just didn't gain traction. And then I ended up back in Missouri and 
got reconnected to that land, um, the land that we're now on. And yeah, that was the beginning. So the original farm, this is a historical farm. It is the mm-hmm. oldest organic farm west of the Mississippi. And mm-hmm. it's in the flight path of the major international airport in St. Louis. But it was established back in, what, 1883? Yeah. And so yeah. it spanned 200 acres at its founding. It was farmed by three generations of the same family, and they had decided to grow without chemicals, which is significant in its own right because they were able to resist the pressure to use chemicals. And then I guess it was what just kind of whittled away with development until 14 acres remained? Right, right. And then was that farm like up for sale or how did it change hands? Well, it was much more challenging than people like us. We basically started off, I say we, because initially there was a gal who was helping get everything started with Earth Ants, Colleen Autry. We started off by renting a single acre of ground on those 14 acres. And Caroline, the wife of of that farming couple, was still living in the brick farmhouse on the property. And she and I developed a really close relationship. I, I kind of felt like she was a great aunt to me. And I loved hearing all of her old stories on the farm. In fact, that was one of the first things I did when starting Earth Dance was a friend of mine who's a filmmaker agreed to come and just video us me interviewing her so that I could collect all these stories and document them. And we ended up making like a 10-minute documentary about the history of the farm by interviewing her and some other people in the neighborhood and chefs who had bought from them over the years and community members. So that was the beginning was just renting an acre. And we didn't have any land security beyond that one year. I mean, I was hopeful in getting a multi-year lease, but at the time, her brother was the, was the trustee, the landlord, essentially. And he was concerned that if his sister passed away, he wouldn't want the land tied up in a multi-year lease. He wanted to be able to sell it immediately. And so we just went year to year those first few years, and then Caroline passed away. And he really wanted to sell to the highest bidder. And we got word from him that there was another bid on the property. And we thought we were going to no longer be able to farm there. And everything for that other offer fell apart. And we were able to end up purchasing the farm through the generosity of a few donors who stepped up and were like, Earth Dance should own this farm so that it can keep being a farm because it was definitely an area that would have probably gotten developed. Oh, yes. What a lucky course of events. And in your panel, you spoke about something really powerful, and that is it's under this umbrella of, oh, wanted to sell to the highest bidder. But I don't believe Mm -hmm. that we are assigning monetary value to Mm -hmm. all that a farm brings to a community, and especially a community like Ferguson. And I think most people in the United States are, you know, we're familiar with Ferguson. It's been on the nightly news. Michael Brown was was shot there tragically, and it really caused an Mm -hmm. uprising, and it brought racial tension to a head. And here's Mm -hmm. your farm. So I want to touch on two things, because I think you're a true miracle worker on this piece of land. For one, you recognize that funders to keep this farm and this healthy healing activity going, yeah, you need funding. However, 
what funders look for are things that are measurable. And you said on the panel so brilliantly, how do you measure or quantify the value of relationships? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's <laughs> especially knowing how long-term this work is, you know. I like this phrase of deep time where we often think of things in terms of a calendar year or a fiscal year, but so much of this work that really has to do with repairing and restoring and even regenerating doesn't happen with our Western quick modes of action. I mean, we believe me, we are people of action. It's not like we're, we're farmers and we're people in the, doing things very actively in the community. And we just know that a lot of this is going to take a long time. And it was really heartening just this last year in our 12th season of growing there to hear the next door neighbor of the farm, Betty, say, you know, for a while I was really considering moving out of the neighborhood. It felt unsafe at times. And she said, I don't want to leave now, though. This farm makes me feel good about the neighborhood. And she comes over and loves picking figs off the fig tree in the front yard. And she comes and volunteers on harvest morning sometimes. And and it's taken a while to get to that point. You know, I've known her for years, but this last year was the, for sure the year she spent more hours on that farm than any other year. And I, it's interesting, I think, too, to think about what the pandemic has offered us in terms of a slowing down mm-hmm. and, and just reckoning with things that are unjust. And I guess I I also want to mention when we're talking about the history of the land, that certainly the Miller family established it as a family farm in 1883. But long before that, we all know that it was Native people living on this land and that the land is the ancestral home of the Missouri, Osage, and Illini peoples. And they were unjustly dispossessed of that land by the United States and still have yet to be paid in any way for that land. So we're we're exploring big topics like these at Earth. I mean, we're we're wanting to look at what it would look like to actually restore the righteous not even owner because I think that I think that's part of our problem is thinking of property as it as if it's privately owned, as mm-hmm. if one person can make the all the determinations about it. You know, that's one of the great losses when the United States came and, and claimed and stole indigenously stewarded land, which was never thought of as putting a single deed on a property. It was always collective. Mm. So I'm really curious, you know, I, I feel like a nonprofit owning land is a is a way of having collective ownership. I've always thought when people are like, "Oh, are you the farm owner?" I say, "Actually, you are too. <laughs> We're yeah. public charity." Yeah. But I, you know, it still isn't like that on paper. People don't feel that real sense of ownership. Right. I think and you raise not yet. Right. No, I think you raise such important points and helping us step back and take a broader view of what it means to care for the land and how many generations before and after that care is going to affect. Let me take one break and just remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are joined by Ms. Molly Rockman, 
founding director of Earth Dance Certified Organic Farm School based in Ferguson, Missouri. Molly, I want to bring forth something else that you said. I believe it was part of your story that you've got on your website, and I'll provide a link to Earth Dance Farm there. But you said that your greatest reward is witnessing the transformation that takes place when individuals spend an entire growing season farming in community. Can you describe that? Oh, yeah. I, I wish I could do it justice with words. It's such a feeling. Yeah, I mean, I, I experienced this firsthand myself as, you know, when I was a, an apprentice at UC Santa Cruz and lived in community while we were learning farming together and sharing all of our meals together. And that was a very different program because it was full-time. And so we we really spent most of our lives together those six months. And at Earthlands, the model for the last 12 years has been about 10 hour a week commitment so that people could, you know, stay living at home and and keep their jobs or whatever to make the program more accessible. But even with those 10, 8 to 10 hours a week, it was still remarkable how much of a social contract is built between people when you're doing physical labor that you love and that's still hard. And over time, you know, again, it's like this idea that this isn't something that you can experience in like a one-day workshop. It's like when you get to know people and just keep showing up and keep showing up that I think there's people who have told me they've gotten over depression. And I think that has a lot to do with the power of being outside. We all know that nature and in particular, even soil, that there's healing mental effects. I think I read that the same, the same ingredient that's in Prozac is actually also found in the soil. And so by actually having physical contact with it, you can, you can really help your brain come to a better state. And in addition to that, having that social connection is just so powerful because, you know, even when we're in really densely populated cities, we can feel very alone because of all of the constraints on our lives and and the fast pace that we live. And we're not just like, you know, tossing somebody a butternut squash we just picked and laughing because, you know, I mean, there's so many things that just happen in the course of farming that you just have to laugh about or you have to like sweat over, you know, and there's just so much camaraderie that's built that way. I couldn't agree Um, more. You know, Molly, so many of the illnesses or diseases that we are Mm. facing as a society, like the opioid addiction, the Mm -hmm. violence that we, that seems to be just part of every day, the shootings, you know, if you hear people in public health talk about that, they talk about these situations as diseases of desperation, And when Mm -hmm. we are connected to the land and the soil and we are outdoors and we have this connection with people, where there's a community, losing that feeling of loneliness is truly curative. And there have been papers published on this. So you're absolutely spot on. And the person who said, yeah, you know, it's kind of strange. I don't feel depressed anymore. It's like, no, that's actually, that's true and Mm well-founded. So I think that there again, 
how do you quantify that for funders and say, I've got a community now in Ferguson that's healing, that's feeling more connected. I don't know if, you know, crime rates have been factored in, but if a community is feeling better and being better nourished, then surely they are going to have less chronic diseases. And you mentioned something on the panel that you just started having a farm stand because we know that this happens. You know, there's a farmer's market on Saturday morning and you've got all of these people that have to work on Saturdays or who can't access that market for whatever reason. And tell me how the farm market, how you develop that farm stand and how that's working. Well, this has been a really exciting development in our growth that we, I mean, it's almost one of these things where it's like, why didn't we do this from day one? But, you know, all in due time, there was other infrastructure that the farm needed. But essentially, we're using an existing piece of farm infrastructure, an old tool shed, and converting it into a pay-what-you-can farm stand. And part of this also came about because of how dramatic, with how dramatically we saw the need for more fresh food in our community as a result of COVID last year, how much more demand was being placed on the local food pantries where we donate some produce. And we wanted to try out this model that's considered economic solidarity. So it's not, it's not just a straight up food pantry farm, which is amazing. And, and those models are amazing, but this is really allowing people who can pay more to help offset the cost for those who can't. And it'll be set up just like a regular farm stand. So that's a difference too. That You know, there's a lot of people that if they get just like a bag of like when there's, when there's fresh food at the food pantry, oftentimes those things just get bagged up and you just get your allotment and move on, you know, because it's a really fast distribution, especially during the pandemic. But that means that, you know, you might get things you don't, care about or you don't like or too much of one thing and not enough of another. And so these people really deserve to choose what they want to eat for their family, you know, regardless of what their income situation is. And so we wanted to make that more possible. So we were very fortunate. The Missouri Department of Agriculture had a grant program that we were awarded a grant to actually cover the renovation costs of the farm stand. It's not going to cover the food costs or the cost of staffing it. But we're kind of bootstrappers as <laughs> farmers, so we're hopefully going to um, make it work this year in the first year of it. And yeah, we we started in like different version last year where we had people pre-sign up and we had shares of the veggies at the farmers market. But we just have had so many people coming right up to us on the farm asking like, "Do you have produce here? Do you sell here?" And so I think it's really what a lot of people in the community have been wanting for a while. It's mm. exciting to be able to offer that. You speak to the issue of dignity that goes with acquiring food. And mm -hmm. by having a farm stand where people can go of all different economic backgrounds and select the food that they want, that mm -hmm. is part of food justice and food sovereignty and dignity. And that brings me to... An issue that I loved the way you spoke about both food justice and food sovereignty. And I think that those words might not be well understood or at least not enough of our vernacular. I want us to talk about them more. So could you mm -hmm. tell me what what comes to mind when, you know, you hear the words food justice, food sovereignty? 
What are the definitions? How are they different or the same? That's a great question. To me, we can't have food justice without food sovereignty. I think for a lot of folks, food justice has been a phrase used to mean people having access to food regardless of income level. That's that's kind of like the simplified version that I've picked up on. But I think it, it does and should mean more than that. I think that it should include food sovereignty, which sovereignty, you know, has like a a governance sound to it, right? So it's like the right of people to actually define what food system will work for them and to really own the means to production too, so that they're not just, sometimes I think food justice sounds like people just having access to the food itself. Well, what about people having access to the land on which they want to grow food? Or what about people having joint ownership in grocery stores or other, you know, co-ops or or ways that that they can actually have more input and even gain from the transactions that take place with regards to food? Mm -hmm. So it's something that I, um, Via Campesina, which I'm sure you're familiar with this group, a really amazing international alliance of farmers and farm workers around the globe have been talking about food sovereignty for over a decade. And I'm really happy that I feel like this phrase is becoming more and more a part of our vocabulary in the U.S. when we're talking about the farm to table movement, because to be honest, there's a lot of us very well-intentioned white folks who have been taking up a lot of space in this farm-to-table movement and speaking or trying to speak on behalf of people of color. And I have been very fortunate and grateful to have received a wide array of education on the topic of, of food justice and food sovereignty from a variety of people of color, mostly, who I've just picked up on, you know, themes here and there where I'm like, wait a minute, we are we are not having big enough questions that we're considering together. You know, it's not like, okay, here's the big umbrella of sustainable agriculture. And under that big umbrella, here's a little piece in the corner that's called food justice or social justice. We can't even think about having sustainable agriculture without food justice and food sovereignty being right there at the center of it. I remember LaDonna Redmond at a Moses conference a few years ago saying, often in this farm-to-table movement, we talk about sustainable agriculture as if we need to hearken back to the time before the advent of industrial agrochemicals. But when was agriculture sustainable then? When we were working on stolen land and having forced African slaves work in our fields? Still today, when this country, you know, is fed by primarily underpaid migrant farm workers, like, what are we trying to get back to? We haven't seen anything like really, truly sustainable agriculture yet. Molly, we'll have to close on that powerful and thoughtful note because we're out of time. I need to thank our listeners for joining us. I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn for KOPN in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. 
Most of all, I want to thank my guest, Ms. Molly Rockman, founding director of EarthDance Certified Organic Farm School based in Ferguson, Missouri. I will provide a link not only to your farm, but for your excellent presentation on an urban justice food panel that was hosted by the University of Missouri's Center for Agroforestry's 12th Annual Symposium. Molly, thank you so much for being such a model for what could be and for being my guest. Thank you so much, Melinda.